Welcome to the podcast for the North Decatur Presbyterian Church. We are a PCUSA congregation located in Decatur, Georgia. You can find out more information about the church, our service to the community, and our great education programs for children, youth, and adults at ndpc.org. And you can follow us on Facebook. If you're in the Atlanta area, we hope you'll come and join us in person. Now let us turn to this week's scripture and sermon, and let us begin with a prayer. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything worthy of praise, let us meditate upon these things. Amen. We have a word from God today from Matthew's Gospel. Listen to the 22nd chapter, beginning in the 35th verse. One of the Pharisees, who was a lawyer, asked Jesus a question in order to test him. Teacher, he said, which commandment in the law is the greatest of all? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. That is the word of God for you, the beloved people of God. Let the church say, Amen. So, a bit of a confession. I feel disoriented. I feel out of sorts. I felt this way since November of 2016. The hard truth is that the person who, as of this day, holds the most powerful office in our nation is a morally deformed human being. His life has no relationship with the truth. He has no interest in goodness. He loves himself. For sure, pathologically so, and shows no interest and no capacity for the basic human bond that we call empathy. Every day that we live with this morally disfigured man occupying this office, his pathologies become legitimated. What it's felt like me to live with this man in power feels like the world is somehow turned upside down. Dr. Martin Luther King, when he looked around at his own world and and saw that it violently enforced the superiority of white people and, and subjected black people to abuse and punishment and scorn, he would quote the 19th century poet James Russell Lowell, who wrote, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. 
by truth on the executioner's scaffold, wrong occupying the throne of power and leadership. That line sounds pessimistic at best. And yet if you know the poem, Lowell goes on, yet that scaffold sways the future. When truth gets put on that scaffold, what happens to truth will sway the course of the future. And behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. In spite of what we see, Lowell said, God is with us. But you have to stay with it. You have to have a clear sense of what is right and good and just, despite what you see in the world with your own eyes. For the abolitionist Lowell, human slavery was the unconscionable reality that obscured his sense of what he knew to be true and good. We too have to be able to affirm what is true and good in spite of what we see. When the world puts a malformed madman on the throne, a a person who normalizes putting children in cages, who normalizes robbing the poor to give to the rich, who spits epithets against dark-skinned human beings and fluffs up white supremacists, we have to be able to keep within us a sense of what is good and right and true and just in spite of what we see. Nowhere in the Holy Scripture, nowhere in God's word is it more clear about what is good and right and true and just for a human being than in today's passage from Matthew's Gospel. Each of the Gospels tells a slightly different version of this Story. Matthew puts it at the very end of his gospel, at the end of Jesus' ministry, when the tension around Jesus is the thickest, when evil is conspiring to try and kill him. In that chaotic moment, Jesus is asked this question What is the greatest commandment? In a brutal time when wrong is on the throne, what word from God will nourish your spirit? If we hold it close, if we whisper it in the dark, if we sing it from the rooftops, what is the greatest of all of the commandments? Jesus answers with two portions from the Jewish scriptures. The first one is Deuteronomy 5. You are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. Love God with your whole person. That's the core of Jewish teaching. And then Jesus adds a second part, which he says is similar to the first. From Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a passage that if you know its wider context, tells us pretty explicitly how we are to love our neighbors. It tells us we're not supposed to steal or tell lies. We're to avoid corruption. We're to swear off hatred and vengeance. The passage tells us to keep from gleaning in the corners of our fields so that our neighbors who are hungry will have something to eat from our own fields. And finally, the passage from Leviticus says that we are to love our neighbors 
We are to treat our kin and those like us with kindness, but not only our kin and those who are like us, but also the strangers in our community, even the immigrants, the people who are different than us. We are to love them too, just as we love the people who are like us and as we love ourselves. So Jesus says, when the world is going to hell in a handbasket, if there's one thing you need to remember, it's this, love God and love your neighbors. Now, I don't know that I have that much to add to your understanding of this holy word. I know that you've heard it a thousand times. Most of you I know have taken this word and held on to it in the privacy of your own hearts. You've let this word guide your decision-making at key points in your life. Most all of you are letting this word from God guide you as you go into the voting booth or fill out your absentee ballots. You're loving God and loving your neighbors and letting that guide your vote. I would say for most of you, the love of God and neighbor that your whole life is an extended meditation on these two loves. So I want to share simply with you this morning a bit about how I have come in my own life to understand this commandment, to love God and love neighbor. So first, uh, a reminder about what love is. Jesus says that love is the fundamental verb of our human existence. It's not breathing, it's not eating, it's not sleeping, it's certainly not texting. Love is what you are made to do. All right, so what is love, right? Love is showing another person genuine concern. Love is delighting in another human being. That sounds simple, I guess. And in some way it is. And maybe you're so used to loving other people. Maybe you, maybe you do this so reflexively that you've forgotten how utterly radical it is to love another person. Love expresses your connection with a being who is outside of your being. Love uh, extends your being outside of itself. In love, you're connecting yourself to someone who is not you. You are declaring that, that existence, your existence, is not a solitary project. You're saying that you are made for this connection. You are made for participation in a community of beings that is by definition bigger than you. Love your neighbors, Jesus says. And when Jesus quotes Leviticus, everyone in that space would have known the context of the passage that he is speaking from. They understood that, that Jesus meant a love that embraces kin and strangers alike. They would have understood that Jesus is inviting them to, to a kind of love that is both a basic expression of kindness and decency toward other human beings, but it's also a love that becomes known through justice, right? It, it's a love that is manifested in a humane social order a love that's expressed in economic policies that are fair and generous to everyone. Now, it's also clear 
that in Jesus's day, loving their neighbors, living into this commandment was just as hard for them as it sometimes seems to be for us. After all, right, Jesus spends his whole darn ministry, his entire ministry, trying to explicitly trace out for folks what neighbor love actually looks like. Uh, Jesus, um, should we love the tax collector, that mercenary who extorts us on behalf of the evil empire? Yes. Yes, Jesus says you should love him and invite him to eat dinner with you. Okay, but what about... What about that guy over there with the skin disease? Yes, Jesus says, you, you should love him and, and lay your healing hands upon him. All right, Jesus, but what about, what about the person who owes me all of that money? Yeah, Jesus says, forgive them. Forgive them their debts. What about our enemy, Jesus? What about our mortal enemy? Well, Jesus says, the person you call your enemy may just end up being the one who shows you God's mercy when you are lying in the ditch, ready to die. Love even your enemy, Jesus says. By the time Jesus gets to the end of his ministry and he's there in Jerusalem and he's asked this question, it is clear by everything that he said and everything that he's done that when he says love your neighbor and then draws a circle around everyone whom he means you to love, there is no human being who is left out. It's never been easy for any of us to do, but at least it's clear. We are to love our neighbors. Okay. Well, how about God? How do you love God? As hard as it is to love our neighbors, as hard as it is in practice, I, I suspect that these days, for most people, we're more comfortable with the idea of loving our neighbor than we are with loving God. After all, when we love our neighbors, at least it's something we can see, smell, touch, hold. What does it mean to love God, something that we can't see or touch or hold? Some of us try and make that that commandment a bit easier by substituting concrete things in place of God. Right? Some of us will put Jesus in there and say, well, at least Jesus was a real dude. Maybe a dude who looks a bit like your cool uncle who dropped out of high school to follow the Grateful Dead a long time ago, right? Or or maybe some of us will substitute the Bible for God. Or some of us will substitute the church or tradition for God. We want to love something that we can see and touch and hold, but I got to tell you, none of that works. God is a mystery. So how do you love a mystery? This is actually where I think practicing love of neighbor helps us in learning how to love God. Anyone who has ever really loved, who has ever really loved another 
human being knows that loving another human being is loving a mystery. The object of every one of our loves is a mystery. I love my partner. I love my partner, but I will never, ever see inside of her soul. I love my kids. I love them with every fiber of my being, but they will always, they will always be mysterious others to me. All of our loves, all of the loves that we, that we are invited to direct toward other human beings, loves that aim not to control or manipulate that person, all of our loves have as their object a mystery. When you understand love in this way, I think the difference between loving another person and loving God becomes a difference of degree and not of kind. God is the ultimate other, right? God is the not you. Over the generations, our tradition has has come up with all kinds of words to describe the otherness of God. We describe God's qualities. We say things like, God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is merciful and just. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And the point of all this language, all these words that we use to describe God, the common denominator of all of them is that God is what you are not. So much of existence is beyond you and me. There are real limits to what we can do. There are real limits to what we can know. There are real limits to our capacity for goodness. So much of this life is beyond our control. And for many of us, that hard reality, the truth about our limits is devastating. It's frustrating, it's maddening, and it's scary. The old proverb describes this feeling poetically. It says, O Lord, be good to me, for the sea is so large and my boat is so small. But what if you came to a place where you understood that the not you part of the universe, all that is not you, all that is out of your control, all that is out of your power, all that is beyond your very certain limits, was not something to fear or to dread, or to be anxious about, but something to delight in, something even to love. What if the mystery of the not you was not some impenetrable black hole? What if the not you of this life were not an absence, but a presence, a benevolent presence. What if this mystery knows your name? What if this this mystery makes 
things for you that you can't make for yourself? What if this mystery gives you gifts that you could never buy for yourself and don't even always deserve? Our biblical story, in all of its fullness, says that the mystery of the not you is God. There is indeed so much that you do not control. The sea is large and your boat is small. But the creator and redeemer and sustainer of the universe is there to hold you amidst it all. The great mystery, the Bible says, does not stay shrouded forever. The mystery is love, and it is with you and for you. I know sometimes it feels like the world is upside down, like truth is forever on the scaffold and wrong is forever on the throne. When you feel like this, you are invited to hold on to the two threads of the most powerful cord that weaves through all of existence. Do what you're made to do. Love your neighbors. Love them in all their mysterious otherness. And love God. Love the greatest of all mysteries. Love God who first loved you. Let the church say, Amen.